Welcome to the 454th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome journalist David Adam to discuss his Nature article titled The Pandemic's True Death Toll, Millions More Than Official Counts. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And you can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. But please don't wait too long. We're wrapping up the normal COVID calls uh, on March 16th. So if you'd like to suggest yourself or another guest, let me hear from you soon. As of March 8th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, 960,269 people have died from COVID-19 in the United States. In Yemen, 2,139 people have died from COVID-19. And in Ukraine, 112,459 people have died from COVID-19, but that number has not moved in over a week. Reporting has stopped. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Grave Counting Satellite Images Seek to Track Yemen's COVID Death Toll, this appeared in Reuters October 27, 2020, and was written by Kate Kelland. First of its kind, study has used satellite images to count fresh graves and analyze burial activity in Yemen to assess the impact of the coronavirus pandemic there and estimate the death toll from COVID-19 or COVID-related causes. This story appeared again in 2020. Using high-resolution satellite imagery, researchers at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine analyzed burial activity at all identifiable cemeteries in Yemen's Aden region and calculated an estimated, an estimated 2,100 excess deaths during the COVID-19 outbreak between April and September of 2020. This total is best interpreted as the net sum of deaths due to COVID-19 infection and deaths indirectly attributable to the pandemic, they said. The indirect deaths would be those caused by disruptions to health services or by measures which may have caused problems accessing food, they added. Humanitarian and global health experts had expected the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on Yemen to be severe, not least because the country's five-year conflict has disrupted already weak health services and led to overcrowding, food insecurity, and shrinking humanitarian aid. The health system has been devastated. Only half of the health facilities are fully functioning, and those which remain open usually lack qualified staff, essential medicines, and medical equipment, such as masks and gloves, oxygen, and other essential supplies, WHO spokesman Tarek Jaserevich told a briefing in Geneva. But as of 25th of October, 2020, 
Yemen, which reported its first confirmed COVID-19 case on April 10th of that year, had recorded only 2,064 infections with 600 deaths from the disease. No comment was immediately available from Yemen authorities on the satellite estimates, but the internationally recognized government has said previously that it reports figures daily for areas under its control and nothing is hidden. Cesarevich said the WHO and other global health experts remain concerned but the official epidemiological curve underestimates the extent of COVID-19 in Yemen. He said this was due to a number of factors, including low availability of testing and a lack of official reporting. Francesco Cecchi, who co-led the grave counting study, noted that having an accurate picture of COVID-19's impact is vital for effective government and humanitarian responses. The researchers who study has not yet been peer-reviewed. Again, this news report from 2020 cited supporting material in their analysis. In May of 2020, videos posted on social media and information from informants reported high numbers of fresh graves, suggesting a spike in burial activity. They said, adding, the use of mechanical excavators in place of human grave diggers suggested that demand exceeded routine capacity. During the same period, the global medical charity Doctors Without Borders reported a peak in hospital admissions with a very high case fatality ratio and media said a shortage of personal protective equipment had forced several hospitals to close or reject patients with COVID-19-like symptoms. The research was funded by aid from the UK government and the technology company Satellite Applications Catapult, which specializes in geospatial analysis. The researchers said they are now conducting a similar study in Mogadishu, Somalia. Okay, I'd like to welcome my guest today for the discussion. Let me introduce him. David Adam is a best-selling author and an award-winning journalist who covers science, environment, technology, medicine, and the impact they have on people, culture, and society. David, thank you for joining me on COVID Calls today. Hello. Let me start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today. So I'm calling from the UK, um, just north of London. Um, to be honest, it's a little bit hard to know because um, a couple of weeks ago we stopped kind of Officially, the government stopped caring about it. You know, they said um, we are we're no longer going to have any restrictions. We're not going to have any um, real efforts to try and try and um, stop the spread of the disease. Um, I, I think if you look hard, you can still find numbers of infections. But I think because of the war in, in Ukraine, everything is just now. Uh, the, the, the news cycle has moved on. So I think it is still happening. Uh, there's still a lot of people getting getting ill with um, usually the Omicron variant. Um, but most of those illnesses seem to be pretty mild. We have a pretty high vaccination level over here. Uh, you know, a lot of people have had both um, jabs and a booster. Um, so I, I, think, I think a lot of people, unfortunately, are still dying. But I think there is a sense here that we've moved on for, for right or wrong. Oh, that's Thank you for sharing that. And it's quite similar to what I'm hearing from friends and colleagues in the United States. But I don't know, you know, there's some pushback on social media um, and in op-ed pages, but I don't know at the sort of like 
the street level, what does someone do or say about the fact that the government may have decided it's time to to move on? I mean, are you is anyone in your community, for example, like you know, registering a complaint about that? Or is that something that is is turned into politics in any way, shape, or form, or it's just where we are now? I think I think it's where we are. I think there is a uh, there's a collective will to believe that it is over, uh, which sort of can um, override sometimes the the more um, you know, rational concern that you might have. I think a lot of people have had the disease now, and they think, well, it wasn't because obviously they survived. It, it wasn't too bad. Um, I think there are there are still signs. So, for example. Um, you still have to wear a mask on the train, um, or at least you did last time I went on a train. That may have changed in the last week or so. And a lot of shops, stores still ask you to wear a mask, but you don't have to. So it almost feels like a small act of resistance, <laughs> wearing a mask, sort of showing people that you're you're aware that this is still happening. Um, mm. Because there are, I don't think it's as bad here as it has been in the States, sort of the politicization of the mask wearing. But there's definitely a sense of, um, um, you know, people are wearing them to show almost um, solidarity with the people who are still who are still suffering with this pandemic, uh, as much as for the public health reasons. I think it's a very visible sign of, you know, I still care about this. Do you have a memory from this time, David, that that sort of? in some ways encapsulates this experience for you? Now, it's kind of a hard question, but is there something that really sticks in your memory right now? So the strongest memory I have was I actually had COVID quite early on, uh, in fact, very early on, around the, the time of the first lockdown over here in the UK. So that would have been um, just under two years ago. So it was sort of late March um, 2020. And this was when it was still a scramble. You know, everyone, all these restrictions, all these changes are being brought in at breakneck speed. Um, and I, I just remember, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I had these symptoms. So I, I'd taken myself off to the, the spare room to keep myself away from the family. And the kids had been, the, the kids' school would close, or not closed, but they weren't going into school. And there was, there was this, um, there's a guy called Joe Wicks, who people can find on YouTube, who, who was a sort of a fitness guru. And he was doing these free exercise classes on YouTube at, I think it was 9.30 every morning. And, and that's my memory, is, is me being sort of sniffly and unwell in one room and hearing my wife and the two kids jumping around in the, in the, in the, in the lounge next door to this um, very distinctive sort of YouTube program. Um, and yeah, and it only lasted for half an hour in the morning, but it's still that's one of the real iconic moments of the early pandemic for me. Well, thanks for that. That's that's really vivid, and uh, for people you know who remember the lockdown, they will remember that their houses got turned into a school in one room, fitness room in the next, and I guess in your house, a convalescent ward in the third. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you're okay. Yeah, I was okay. I mean, this was um, this was before vaccine, so I kind of took it, you know, full force. But um, I was I was I was ill. I, I, I was I was poorly for a couple of days where I couldn't get out of bed. 
Um, but, I, but there were no tests available. So the, I only really knew it was COVID when I woke up one morning and I had no sense of taste or sense yeah. of smell, which was, which was bizarre. Um, I, I then subsequently did get an antibody test, so I know it was COVID. But um, yeah, compared to most people, we, we've done okay in our family. Let me remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to journalist David Adam, who wrote a piece that appeared in Nature in January of this year, The Pandemic's True Death Toll, Millions More Than Official Counts. And uh, I have been tracking this issue and reading everything I can on it and with close colleagues like Jackie Vernamont, who um, is at, at Dartmouth, and Robert Soden, who's in Toronto. We've written about this. And I thought I really enjoyed your, well, enjoy is the wrong word, but I, your piece was really helpful to lay, lay out some landscape here where we are with the undercount issue. And we're going to go into, into the different pieces of it. I want to start with a basic question, David, which is, what does it matter if the count is wrong? So I think, um, so there are two ways to answer that question. The first is kind of the big humanitarian issue, is that this is the greatest disaster most of us have lived through. Um, well, it was until last week, <laughs> uh, with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, the greatest disaster that most of us have personal experience of, uh, probably in our lifetimes. Um, and I think there is just a, a sense of you want to know how bad it is, how severe it is, uh, because you, you see stuff on the news, you're exposed to your own little bit of it. And there's a sort of, I think one of the things that got people through the lockdowns was a sense of a shared experience. And I think, sadly, part of that shared experience is knowing how many people have have been affected much worse than you. And clearly dying is, is the ultimate where you can be affected. So, So I think there is that sense of, we're all part of this together and we want to understand the magnitude. Um, and I think on a more sort of um, short term level, I think one of the points about doing this tracking of the death toll was to try and do it in real time. So you could see, in theory, which countries had higher or lower death tolls than others. Um, and then is there a way then of working out how that has happened? Like for example, are they taking measures? Are they are they not doing things? And and in, in principle, that could feed into the response, um, the real time response, to hopefully help the case of the situation in some places, and certainly to help us prepare for the um, for the next pandemic. So so it's not necessarily the total number around the world which is what matters here. It's the the differences between countries and, and, and if that can be traced or pinned on different policy responses. That's really interesting. So, I mean, one, one way to think about this then is really that uh, it's a dashboard that should inform policy in real time. And the other is a little bit more cultural around sort of keeping empathy going and keeping people motivated to, you know, we were talking about masks or, you know, uh, earlier in the lockdown phase. We'll follow up on both of those, I, I think, but let's, you know, maybe start a little bit here in understanding how and why countries record deaths differently. Yeah, it's, um, as I wrote in the piece, you know, the only certainties in life are death and taxes. 
and and countries do both of them in massively different ways. Um, I mean, the at, at the simplest level, counting deaths is is relatively easy because there's no dispute. This is someone who has died. You're not you're not trying to diagnose them with a particular condition. Um, you're not trying to say this is how they died. You just know that they have died, so you can count them up. Um, in, in, and, it, and it sounds simple, but in reality, it's a huge logistical exercise um, because people are dying all over the place um, and you usually want to count them in one place. So then you have to get the information about who has died and when to a central data count, which is not as easy as it sounds because um, this is this isn't just you can't just send an email. There's sort of an official a respectful paper chain that has to be followed when you when you record a death. So over here, you know, there has, sometimes there's a coroner's report. Sometimes um, there are only certain people who can uh, record a death and in a set way. I remember writing a piece about deaths in the United States and they had um, lots of these very rural counties who would still physically post in their reports. You know, they, 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 would, they would write it down, they'd put it in an envelope, they'd put it in the mail. And that would then go to a sort of a clearing centre and that would go. And, and so there's a chain and at every step of that chain, there can be delays. So um, and, and that's just for the countries that, that do count deaths, that sort of have a mandatory reporting system. There are many countries in the world who don't systematically collect deaths because there just isn't the infrastructure to do it and it isn't a priority. So in many cases, many countries in, in rural Africa, for example, there just isn't. They don't produce annual statistics of, of, of deaths. Um, so, so that's 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 an issue with 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 essentially counting, which means that you almost always undercount unless you are willing to wait a long time. And then, so a lot of countries traditionally would just produce death statistics at the end of the year. This is how many people have died over the year. But if you're trying to do uh, what we talked about, the real-time analysis of the COVID pandemic deaths, that isn't good enough. You can't wait till December to to try and work out what's happening now. Um, so that's why there are these efforts that have been launched to try and, I guess, fill in the gaps, both the both the temporal gaps in the time that it takes that data to get recorded and published, um, and the, the the geographical gaps where the data just aren't being recorded. In your research for the piece, I mean, you're describing some, I think, some political pressures in the last two years for for counting and to try to maybe even speed up, obviously, and, and to get information as quickly as, as possible. This becomes an issue of a national health agenda, which it did in every country, I think, um, by February or March of 2020. What about political pressures against counting? Did, did you uncover anything around that? I mean, you know, and I asked this particularly, I'm in South Korea and not far away from a neighbor um, that just hasn't released data. You know, I mean, some countries just don't release it. I th yeah, I think um, it, it is natural to compare the performance of, of, of whatever regions you have to see who's doing better who's doing worse and just in the in, in in the press as a way of 
telling a story. Um, and a lot of those numbers were, were national. So it was very easy almost in the early days to produce a, a, a graph of reported COVID deaths and make one country look worse than the others. And, and, and over here, certainly in the early days, the UK government was very proud of the fact that it was, it may not have been deaths, it may have been infections or, or cases um, were much lower than the rest of Europe. And then it, they say it was a complete coincidence, but on, on the day that the UK overtook the rest of Europe, they stopped producing these statistics, they stopped producing these graphs anyway. Um, so I think there is a, um, as there is in all healthcare uh, issues, there is a, um, there's a scrutiny, which I think some governments would rather not have. And if they are in charge of the data, and they're in charge of releasing that data, which is going to attract that scrutiny and potentially criticism, then you can see there is a political, um, there's a political incentive not to produce that. There is also a, there is a legitimate reason in that we mentioned um, each country quite often does it in a different way. Mm. So over here in Europe, um, in the beginning days when there weren't that many tests available, that there was this huge variation in the way that countries would classify a COVID death. So in some countries, uh, it almost had to be someone who had been, had been tested, had been shown positive and died in a hospital. Um, and in other countries, it was just someone who had COVID symptoms who died in the community. And, and so you could see that one of the second of those is going to be far greater than the first. And if you're the country which is recording it in that second way, your figures are going to be much higher. Mm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing a worse job and that more of your population are dying. It's just the way that you have recorded it, the way that you've classified that as a COVID death. So, so, so that was a bit unfair. And, and, and lots of, lot, again, when the UK was claiming it was doing better than everyone else in Europe, lots of people were saying, we have to be a bit careful at making these comparisons because you're not comparing apples with apples with apples comparing apples with pears. Um, but then, of course, when it suited the government to say that they were not doing so well, that then they would they would agree with that. So so there are political pressures in both directions, I think, both to not to publish. And, and, and something, you know, if, if, if you were the country which is only recording COVID deaths from uh, diagnosed people who died in a hospital, your numbers are going to be quite low. So the, diversity, there could be an incentive to publish those. Yeah, I think this is one of these cases in modern society where, where and just as the way you started, it's like, well, it should be pretty cut and dry to know we're postmodern, but someone's dead or they're alive. Um, and so, but we live in a sort of expectation of a of a, a information immediacy and dashboard culture that we should be able to say, oh, I can understand Yemen or Ukraine or the United States or UK, and I can tell you what that what that number is. And, and I think you're, you're showing us the, the problems with that, with that assumption. I, I am the other thing I just want to remember with you. I don't know if you noted this, but there was a moment where Donald Trump 
in 2020. I don't talk about Trump much, but he he did give a speech in which he talked about the problem of testing. But it wasn't what you'd expect. It wasn't that we don't have enough capacity for testing. This is summer of 2020. He said, we, we're testing too much. He said, if we stop the testing so much, we it, it'll be fine. We, the reason that the numbers are so high is we're doing so much testing. And I mean, it's... It's an insane idea on the face of it, but of course it's directly connected to what we're talking about. Because then if you don't actually have the confirmed diagnosis, then people come in the hospital and die, they're going to attribute it to something else, right? Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. Exactly. And, and there was a... You wouldn't want to give Trump the benefit of the doubt in that case, but there is a kind of a perverse logic to it. Well, I mean, because the, the reverse is true. When you say that these countries have got loads and loads of cases... That doesn't necessarily mean they're doing any worse. It's just they're the ones doing the most testing. Um. Let me do remind folks who are listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to David Adam today about his piece, The Pandemic's True Death Toll, Millions More Than Official Counts, which appeared in Nature in January of this year. So it's a term that people, I guess, they've gotten used to at this point, and you really unpack it in this piece and its excess deaths. I don't even like the sound of it. I'm not a public health, you know, researcher. I've had a lot of guests on who've who've used this this term um, in talking about COVID nineteen, um, but it seems to have really turned out to be an important diagnostic tool as we think about the undercount of COVID nineteen. Can you talk about excess deaths as a concept? Sure. So I think it's important to say with. Now we're moving on to what we described as trying to fill the gaps, and um, in in the in the death recording, and this is where it does get a bit more fuzzy. It's not just as straightforward as this person is dead, or or they're not, because you're making assumptions, and some of those assumptions are based on evidence and data, and some aren't. But excess deaths, um, the most simplest way of thinking about it, is that we no longer care who dies of COVID because it's too difficult to work that out. What we're going to do is just how many people died full stop. And you would expect in a pandemic, the number of people who die in a country would go up because there's something else for them to die of. There's this extra extra disease, extra risk, extra reason for people to die. Therefore, um, if there were, I'm making these numbers up now, if there were a, a thousand deaths in one particular city, uh, in last last year, you might expect there to be 1,200 this year because an extra 200 people have died of COVID. So that's the theory. Um, and the way that you do that is that you can look back over a number of years. Uh, so some places took a, a five-year average. So the, so the five years before the pandemic, on average, how many people would you expect, is the word, expect to die? Um, and then you compare it to the years in the pandemic and you see usually that it's increased and then you can say okay at least some of that increase maybe all of that increase is down to covid so you no longer are comparing country for country based on how many people died of covid you're looking at how many more people died and and we can make an assumption that that's mostly down to covid now that assumption is 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 threatened by a, a number of things one is one of which is that if you have a population which is aging that the age profile is is rapidly increasing you would expect more people to die in in a population where there are more people in their ni- in, in their 80s for example than 90s um so um 
in Germany, for example, because of a quirk of the timing of the of the war, um, in the last few years, it just had a number of sort of surges in the number of people in their 80s, because this was a generation who was too young to fight in the war. So they'd reached, the, they'd reached their 80s and they were, they were now dying of natural causes. Um, and so the expected deaths in that case would be higher than it than you would than it actually was statistically. So, so so there are certain wrinkles you need to iron out like that. And another one is, of course, not everybody who dies does die from COVID. So um, over here, there's been a big sort of political debate about people who die of COVID or people die with COVID. So if you have it, and you if you have been diagnosed with COVID, you get knocked over by a bus. Some people would say that would still count as a COVID death because you've been diagnosed in the last month before your death. Um, there are also things like there have been some pretty severe local conflicts and wars uh, in in the last few years in some places. And also there have been other diseases that have been going around and people have still been dying of, of other diseases. Um, so, so you have to sort of try and build that in and to account for it where you can. But, but very broadly speaking, if you have death data being collected, and remember in most of the countries of the world we don't, or half the countries of the world we don't, but in the countries that we do have death data being collected, excess death means you don't have to work out which of those died of COVID. You just look at the total number of deaths. And then that allows you to infer something about the impact of the pandemic on, on the death count in those places. Does that method then allow you also to say something about countries that don't do um, mortality counting on a regular basis? In other words, maybe countries that are only doing sort of more intermittent counting or annual counting than this sort of excess death methodology then allows you to project onto those countries? I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that because that is a, it's an interesting move. And one could say there might be some ethical problems so with as- that too. As I understand it, any country that, that counts deaths at any point, as long as it's sort of a regular occurrence, you can you can work out excess deaths. Even if yeah. a country only produces one figure at the end of the year, you can still compare that. You just have to wait. Or you have right. to use the most recent data you have, which is why in a lot of calculations of excess deaths, it's important to look at the time series up to which point. Because some places... Uh, some local places, for example, publish data to death statistics more frequently than countries. So you can, um, in, in some cases, you can try and take a local excess death and kind of extrapolate it to, if this was true over the whole country, how would that affect the whole country? Um, but it's the countries that don't produce data at all where you have a, I see. Where you have a blind spot. The, um, the countries that which produce data uh, sporadically or, or, or not not comprehensively, you're just going to have much wider error bars on your on your estimates because you've got less data to, to build to, to to work with to know that what you're doing is correct. But in principle, you can work out an excess deaths um, as long as there has been regular death reporting in the past. So, in the piece, you analyze the different modeling techniques and the different purveyors of models. I just want to read a little bit from the piece. You say, among these models, the World Health Organization is still working on its first global estimate. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle offers daily updates of its own results, as well as projections of how quickly the global toll might rise. And one of the 
highest profile attempts to model a global estimate here, again, quoting from your nature piece, has come from the news media. The Economist magazine in London has used a machine learning approach to produce an estimate of 12 million to 22 million excess deaths or between two and four times the pandemic's official toll so far. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about these different models and particularly the Economist model, which um, I guess, you know, sort of going into this part of our discussion, I mean, my, my general question is, what does The Economist have, where does The Economist get the right to do this kind of modeling? But then again, um, this kind of data, data journalism has, has really been showcased in the pandemic. So I guess I shouldn't be so surprised. Yeah, I think I was quite surprised. But then when I spoke to academics and spoke to people at The Economist, it, it kind of makes sense in a way because academics, uh, they're not as nimble. You know, they, they can't just pivot from one project to another. Um, one guy said to me, you know, he was a proper full-time demographer. He said, for me to do that, I'd need to hire three postdocs, you know, just to come in and set it up. And I, I can't, do, I just can't get the money to do that that quickly. Whereas uh, outside academia, um, there is, uh, you know, there's, there's more flexibility, perhaps. They, they can hire people, they can bring in people, they can. Um, and also, I think it's just, it is a, it's quite a, what we talked about at the beginning, it, there isn't necessarily a solid academic interest in, in measuring deaths in real time. Um, it's more of a, it's a question for the media almost, or the question for policymakers, rather than sort of traditional academics. And, and demographers are stretched pretty thin anyway. Um, and, and perhaps you could also argue that demographers see all the problems with trying to do it. Whereas, you know, someone, data scientist comes from the outside and thinks, well, let's just have a go. Let's see where we can get to. Because, you know, they're not, they're not publishing it in academic journals. Their, their reputation, if you like, doesn't, you know, isn't going to be threatened by publishing analysis, which some people say isn't, isn't, isn't proper and properly done. Although I think The Economist absolutely is properly done, and we, and we can get on to talk about that. Um, so, yeah, from the outside, it looks curious, but I think... Um, it's it's, manipul it's manipulation and modelling of data, which which th there's as much expertise in in the world outside academia, possibly more so now. Um, so there's no, you know, there's no practical reason why they couldn't do it, and and there doesn't really seem to be a cultural reason reason either when you think about it. I mean, you and I could do it if we wanted to. With the data, the data the economists use are out there. They've just then developed their own model. Um, they haven't as far as I can see, sort of trodden on anyone else's toes. Certainly, academic demographers seem quite happy with it and, and in fact, quote some of the economist results in their own work. The critics of The Economist, which you also cite in, in your piece, do claim, though, that it's a sort of an op-ed with, with a data table. So what's the basis of the criticism? So, and I think, to be fair, The Economist wouldn't overclaim for mm -hmm. what they're doing. Um, the criticism basically is rooted in, so now we're on to filling the geographical gaps. So there are some countries that don't produce any statistics, COVID deaths or total deaths or, or anything that you can use to try and estimate the deaths from the pandemic in the words we've already talked about. So if you want to work out a global death toll, what do you do? You can't, you can't just ignore those countries. So what The Economist and, and other people do is, um, and, and this is where any any machine learning experts watching, listening to this, will put their head in their hands because I'm going to grossly simplify it. But um, 
essentially you, you find, uh, as I understand it, the way that they do it is that they, they use the data they have got. So let's say the UK, Canada, South Korea and the US have this mm-hmm. sort of death toll, which which we know. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the excess deaths that we've already calculated. Maybe it's the real COVID statistics. Um, you ask a computer to, uh, well, you, you give the computer maybe a hundred, um, what you think are data points which or, or data that might influence that. So spending per head on healthcare, number of doctors, number of hospital beds. Um, you might think, well, what also matters is the speed of communication. So access to broadband. Um, you might think that, okay, countries that are more open are going to be more um, honest about their reporting. So you might include things like number of years a country's been a democracy. You might include things like the the density of population because that can affect the spread, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't, you don't tell the computer these are important. You just give them the, uh, the background and you then you show them the output, which is the number of people who died, and you allow the computer to make those inferences. So the computer would look through all the various options and say, okay, I, the computer, think that the density of population is the most important factor. That can explain 60% of the difference in the output that we see. And maybe access to healthcare is also very important. That could explain another 30% of it. Um, so then what, it, what, what the, the model then has a, um, a, a, a series of explanations that it can use to try and uh, apply to a country for which it doesn't have the output data, but it does have the input data. So you can say, for example, Chad in Africa, you, know, right. you can say what you think the average population density is. You can say how many years it's been a democracy. You can say how many doctors per head of population there are, et cetera, et cetera. And you can give the computer that data and the computer can say, ah, well, based on how important I think these these things are, and what those have produced in other countries, we think we can take these uh, sort of background data for Chad and say it's probably going to produce this many COVID deaths. Now, the error bars on it are very big uh, because in some cases you don't really, perhaps you don't know with, 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 a, with a good, um, with any reliability what the density of population is in Chad. Maybe you're using figures that are 30 years out of date, who knows? But but you can try. And 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 the worse the kind of input data is, the more that the error bars are going to grow and grow and grow on the output. But you can produce a number. And that number is almost always greater than zero, <laughs> which yeah, is the right. number that you had, <laughs> you had to start with. Right. So, so, so whatever happens, you, you're getting closer to the real situation unless you truly believe that zero people have died in in chad because it's reported as zero now the criticism comes in in two parts one is sort of a methodological criticism which says that the error bars are just too big you know you're kind Mm. of guessing to which the economist people sort of respond by saying well would you rather have a number of zero which you know is wrong would you rather have a range of numbers which within there the the right answer probably lies you know and it comes down to well what are you using it for and if you're trying to produce a global death toll is it better to to not include half the countries of the world or is it better to 
include them, but to say we're very uncertain about this, which is why the the, the spread of the Economist results are so great between, I can't remember what you said it was, between 12 or 14 million and 22 yeah. million. Yeah. You know, that's an entire yeah. industrialised country there, with the, yeah, the, exactly. the difference between those two. So, so that's one uh, criticism. The other criticism is more, I guess, sort of structural, which is you just can't, you can't take data which is almost all produced in the developed world. So the countries who do have good counting systems or tend to be those that are, are, are in the developed world and assume that all the same reasons that people die are going to apply to a country in sub-Saharan Africa. Because you just there's just too much of a difference there. That, that, you know, there's whole sorts of reasons that people could, could die of a disease in Africa that they wouldn't die of it in, in the UK. And they don't all have to be in those ones that you've in those factors that you've determined. So it's more of a it's part structural and I think partly I think people feel it kind of almost morally in a way. It's a bit like why should you know you just can't you can't take the way that we live and apply it to, to other people in, in these countries where it's so different. It's just too much of a too much of a job. Um so and and, and also there is a there's a sense as well that the assumptions involved are are so great that it sort of undermines the the effort that you, that you are you are literally just just taking a guess. Um, but I spoke with one modeler in academia who basically told me that he got he got asked to join a sort of an official modeling um, effort, and he was very skeptical about it. And he said, "No, no, no! I, I just it's just there's too many uncertainties. There's too many assumptions." Until he realised that they were going to do it anyway, and right. then he said, "Well." If you're going to do it anyway, I want to be involved because I think I could do a better job, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though it's really difficult. So there is this sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place because of this natural curiosity to find out or to try and answer how many people have died. Almost the best modelers are sort of getting pulled into it almost reluctantly to try and do it. I just, I, I just, well, thank you for going through that in such, in such good detail. And I just feel like there's there's a whole world of ethical conundrum in in what you just described. I mean, on, if you weren't in the middle of a disaster, it would seem like the right thing to do would be to come up with a global funding structure to allow countries that are not doing this kind of data collection to do it. Because that would then indicate the growth of health system in places that might not have, you know, the capacity at this point to sustain a health system. And that might be because of war or any number of other other reasons. But then that problem you put your finger on, the, the, to say that there would be countries, many of them, dozens of them around the world where you just would put a zero because you just can't do the count. That's also just, it just seems, it just seems like a totally unacceptable. So it's, again, it's like you said, it's you're kind of, you're stuck. You don't know which is the worst thing, but you're trying to come up with a global with a global count. And I, I mean, just one thing I would add on to that, and I guess I'm editorializing here, but it, there are real reasons to believe that as the global number goes up, it, it does become easier and more pressing to make arguments for funding from private institutions and public institutions around the world to make sure that we don't end up in this situation again. And it's a terrible bind we're in, but the worse the disaster is, the bigger a public policy issue it's going to remain. And I think that 
the, the reverse is also true that if you were to just in, in good faith produce a map of COVID deaths around the world, um, you would have large swathes of the world where there are zero deaths. And anyone who looks at that in good faith will know that's because they're not producing data. But it has been the case that that has been taken out of context and used in bad faith to show, for example, oh, you know, we don't need to give vaccines to Africa. Look, no one's dying. Right. So, so there are, you know, there are there are ethical issues with not modelling as well in that way because that just creates a situation that can be deliberately misused as propaganda. Are the, are the data, for example, this is where some comparison might be interesting, the, the sort of mortality data versus, say, vaccination data, are those ever correlated? So you could have a country, for example, that might have very low excess deaths or the numbers are not reported, but at the same time, you could maybe look at the vaccination data so, to give you maybe a clearer picture somehow. I think I think people are trying to make those comparisons. I, I, this is not my field of expertise. I, I think that of all the signals that you would find in the data, I think vaccination is is not one of the strongest, at least not for the data that they have, because in the early months, that was when there was the biggest difference between people who were dying and not dying was just down to things like lockdown. You know, you could see the numbers just fell off a cliff um, mm. from, from people dying. And I think the vaccine strategies came in later and it was harder to, it's probably harder to disentangle the effect from things like lockdown, things like people naturally taking more precautions. So um, I could be wrong. There could be people out there trying to do it. And I'm sure in, in the years to come, people will try and do it. Um, I, th I think, yeah, I, I, the honest answer is that I don't know. Let me uh, just remind folks here listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to science journalist David Adam today about his piece in Nature the pandemic's true death toll, millions more than official counts. I want to follow up a little bit on one of the things you noted earlier about the sort of cultural impact of the count. And I've had, you know, lots of guests on COVID calls to talk about memorials who've tried to represent um, this data um, in artistic practices, in textile making, in flags. So, I mean, also the count has implications just in terms of how people, you know, in a more, it's taking a quantity, but it turns it into a sort of a qualitative, an attempt to qualitatively understand the scale of a disaster. And I, I guess it's it's kind of the question I started with, but I wonder if you could bring it down maybe just to more the level of human experience. So not just what does it mean to get the count wrong in terms of public policy, but just the way people, and you don't write about this as much in the piece, but I wonder how you think about it. You know, to change people's sense of how to act or how much time to spend worrying about this disaster or whether or not they should support a memorial in their town. Do you, how do you think about the undercount in, in that way? Oh, I've never really thought about that. Um, let me think out loud. I think that, um, I guess if you think about memorials of the past, they've all been very localised. So you walk around London or the UK, there's lots of different war memorials, but they tend to be the people from this railway company and all the names. 
and the people from this town or this club or this area. I know there are memorials like the Holocaust Memorial where there's just millions of names. Or and, and the is it the Vietnam one in the States where they have sure. every soldier who died. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so you do get that. But I think it's that it's that horrible quote which I can't remember who said it. I think it's sometimes attributed to Stalin that you know, ten deaths are a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. Mm-hmm. I, I think you will always feel most acutely the impact that it had on you. You know, if if your if your dad died, mm-hmm. that isn't an undercount. <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. that's one, and that's the only one that you really matters to you. Um, so I'm not sure in in terms of kind of a cultural memory whether the actual number matters. I don't know, I might be wrong, but I think that you just feel these things acutely and personally. And to me, whether I, I couldn't tell you how many million people died in the 1918 pandemic, even though I've researched and written about it. You know, if you tell me it's 1 million, you tell me it's 50 million. I'm not sure how much that affects my sort of belief that this is something worth remembering and, and worth memorializing, because mm-hmm. it was a great tragedy that affected lots of people around the world. Um, but that's that's just a very personal perspective. But maybe there are people who think that you know these things have to reach a certain threshold for them to justify a particular level of memorialization. I I don't know, but I, I think that I think you know memorialization ultimately is in people's in their own memories and their own stories and the way that they talk about this and the way they remember people, individual people. It's much easier to remember individual people. Um, than it is to try and remember a number. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think maybe that's the case that the memorials that are going to matter from from this disaster are going to be the ones in the local, in front of the hospitals and in the local communities instead of sort of big national memorials that try to deal with these enormous numbers. But you mentioned 1918, and I, was, I did want to ask you about that. It's one of these very strange things. I mean, if you look at textbooks, uh, you will often see a paragraph that'll say something. It's about World War One in there, tucked in there somewhere. Is one paragraph that talks about the pandemic, and it'll say somewhere between fifty and hundred million people died, and it just goes on to the next thing, and it, and it just sits there as a as a sort of data point. And I, I mean, these techniques that you've been talking about, are people using them retrospectively? Is it something we can do? This sort of excess mortality counting to get a better handle on how many people died in say World War Two. I mean, it could be war as well, I suppose. I, I I don't know. Um, I I can imagine people might try, but I I think one of the not benefits, one of the um, the features of trying to work out deaths that happened in the past is that you don't have that element of trying to do it in real time. So right. so I can imagine for World War Two, for example, all the records that were ever made will have been found and accounted for. Um, so they still, they still don't know where some of the, the the dead people are, but they know that they're dead. They know they didn't come home, um, and they know if your if your um, community was bombed. You know, you know people are missing. You know that they're probably dead. But I think what's different with the pandemic is that the, the single the single biggest difference that would improve all these estimates is just better data. Mm. So, so we don't yet have, we haven't yet collected all the relevant data that we could use. 
And I think over the next few years, we will do, and we will be able to get a much more accurate sense of um, of that death toll from this pandemic. To do the same for the 1918 pandemic, as I understand it anyway, you'd have to find a whole load of new records that hadn't yet been accounted for, um, which I just don't know if they exist. So it's a bit like all, these, all, yeah. these, all these efforts, like any kind of, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Right. Um, all these all these modeling efforts, all these estimation efforts, all, all rely on having something to work with. Mm. And, and the more things you have to work with, the better the outcomes. Let me just quickly remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and we're almost out of time in our conversation today. Um, you can see I'm losing my light entirely. I've, I've moved to a different <laughs> part of my house and the sun has gone down and uh, I, I'm not working in my office for complicated reasons. So I'm sorry if I look like I'm working by candlelight right now. But uh, anyway, um, I uh, again, just to where I started, I really appreciated this piece. And I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, like, I mean, is this are you following up on this or is this an indication of some work you want to continue doing as we try to get our minds around the sort of broader scope of this disaster? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I think, so I, I work as a freelancer, so I sort of go where the demand is. I think I know that there are some um, new efforts coming out. So the um, the World Health Organization is going to produce its own version of what The Economist have done, um, which, if you like, will be presented as more official, I suppose. You know, this will be the official estimate of, of the death toll around the world which will be, it'll still have huge error bars on it. And I'd be surprised if it varies much from The Economist, but it will probably, it will probably make quite a splash when it happens. Um, and lots of these issues will be discussed again. Um, and I think, I think what will happen is over time, you'll just see those, those same efforts refined um, and, and the data will become more reliable. I don't think we'll ever get to know and more importantly, demographers that I've spoken to don't think we'll ever know with any certainty um, how many people died of, of COVID. But I think we will get a, a better idea than we have now. We're going to cross that one million threshold in the United States sometime in the, in the I guess, pretty soon. Uh, and that's going, to, that's going to be a headline grab at that, at that moment. And we're going to be in the same sort of problem you've been describing right now. People are going to probably ask all these same questions again is it a million or did we actually pass a million back in back in november mm, mm. yeah well i think when it was when all these sort of political issues were were very live so people arguing about whether we should wear masks or not people are i know people still are doing this but it, it doesn't feel as raw as it did say a year or so ago at least over here yeah it, it might just take a bit of the pressure out of the debate and and there might be more you know, it might not quite be as, um, what's the word, adversarial, because one camp wants the high, wants the camp to be high, one camp wants the camp to be low, and so you get this kind of right. politicisation of it, which, which hopefully, as time goes on, that will diffuse. Let me just remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time, although these days we're doing COVID calls pretty much around the clock leading up to the culmination of the COVID calls archive. March 16th. And I want to thank my guest, David Adam, for talking about his piece, The Pandemic's True Death Toll, Millions More Than Official Counts, which appeared in Nature in January of this year. Um, 
it's great work and I really appreciate it. And, uh, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me about it today, David. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.